Dr. Jekyll. What's happening, sir? Are you all right? What is it? What do you want? Is that you, Dr. Jekyll? Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, fool. Before I get started with this podcast, meth or the devil that will take your soul, I want to introduce a nonprofit organization that has joined up with me, and it's Building Beyond Me, which is designed to create a loving, caring, compassionate community where all people are accepted. They work to offer nonprofit and community organizations support to foster their growth and effectiveness. Please check out their website at Building Beyond Me. And again, that's Building Beyond Me. Okay, here we go. My name is Eric McCoy, and I am the host of Recovering Through Highness. You know, understanding the workings of the mind of someone who is completely psychologically, physically, and emotionally dependent on methamphetamine can be very difficult for someone who has never crawled into that hole. In 2013, I made a single decision that could have killed me. I had 11 years clean and sober, and I found myself standing in my room holding a glass meth pipe, and I was trying to come up with the reason why hitting that pipe could make sense. I had Beelzebub (laughs) in one ear that I could handle it, no big deal, just take one hit. In the other, I had Benefactor, or that kindly helper that was telling me to put it down. And remember, the control it had over me many years ago. I held that pipe for about 20 minutes as those two fought with each other. Bills above one. And I hit that pipe and I will never forget the realization I had immediately after I blew out the smoke. And here's what the realization was. I am fucked. Instantly, a compulsion combined with cravings kicked in. And I knew that my life was over as I knew it. And I was going to need to hold on to that roller coaster. My guest today is my wife, Morella, and very important to this story. In 2013, we weren't married, but we lived together. Um, she, She wasn't present when I made that decision but would find out very quickly as I worked to manipulate her. I called her from my work, and yes, I was working in a treatment facility. I knew about her past of using meth, and I was hoping that she could locate more as my mind and my body was desperate to have more. Morella? I need your help today as I want my listeners to really understand the workings of an insane person who becomes captive to this drug. Most people out there who haven't experienced this nightmare think of these people as 
bad people, criminals, and justifiably so from their perspective? Or is there something much more sinister that is happening? Thank you, Morella, for joining me on this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you really quick, from an outwardly perspective, what did you see? I saw the man that I loved die and try to fix, try to bring him and trying to bring him back. Um, he almost instantly became a completely different person. Your morals were no longer your morals. Your love and attention was no longer on me and the family. Um, completely selfish, hateful individual. So you had in the past a drug problem yourself. Would you define it as a problem that you had? I think my problem is at a completely different level than your problem. <laughs> and what I learned from that experience was that there is different levels of addiction. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a, I do have a problem and I know that if I had it, you know, anywhere near me that the temptation would be there. Um, but there was just a different level of my addiction versus your addiction. Um, we're still both addicts, but not in the same level. When I think back at those days, when, when that had ultimately happened, and I went from obviously smoking that pipe or taking one hit and then taking one more hit and then smoking one bowl. It was a lot of ones. <laughs> right. And once I reached that place to where... I was able to get large quantities of it. And this is why I really wanted to ask your help on this because I can't even remember the people that I associated with. Mm -hmm. I can't even put faces to the people that I was associating with. Right. And there's so many times throughout that period that my memory is very foggy. Mm -hmm. And, and when I was writing the book, pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. I struggled a bit in the first part, which was pain, failure, and misery, because my memory was very foggy about those times. Luckily, I was able to reach out to a couple people that were actually present with with me during that time that also got their perspective and then i wrote the chapter on that relapse and i struggled with it a bit and i know you actually gave me some information that was very helpful in doing that and it was almost like you know the the selfishness that comes into play the Spencer of who has 11, who had 10 years, I think at that point in time, clean and sober and me going and manipulating him to purchase methamphetamine to sell 
because that was one of the things that I was trying to do was to get a lot of money to be able to support my habit because I knew obviously I was going to lose my job uh, at some point in time, which I did. So when I met you, I had years clean and sober and you actually were able to go to my party that was for my 11 years at, um, at that program that I worked for. And the thing that we've heard or talked about for many, many years is that when people have a real addiction and they go out and they use it or try it, it's almost like you never stopped. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I really believed it up until that moment in time. And when I realized and came to that realization that I was fucked and I set rules if you remember. Yes, I do. <laughs> that as long as I don't go out at night, as long as I don't slam it, since IV drug use was my preferable method, and as long as I didn't do it before work. And I don't remember exactly how quickly I broke those, but I know it was fairly fast. And when I look back on it today, and I know you weren't really around in 2001 when I went through all of that stuff, but when I, re- when I look back at that story of where I was in 2001, that story came back in a very quick period of time. Right. Where I was living in hotels or motels and committing all the crime and everything that I was doing. And I know for me that my values and all of my morals and all of those things do quickly go away. So just from your perspective, what did you see as the difference between when I was clean and sober and when I had relapsed? So number one, you're right. I didn't know you when you were in your depths of uh, addiction in early 2001. We had been dating for approximately a year when you had your relapse um, this time in 2013. I had never felt the kind of love that I felt with you, the connection that we had. Um, And I clearly remember going to your 11th year um, party that was thrown for you where you had judges and, um, you know, attorneys there. And you just had, it was, it was so inspiring for me because I saw this, this man who overcame so much. And I love the fact that you had these morals and you were, you would give your shirt off of somebody's, you know, off your back, you would, um, you were just a friend to everybody and you wanted to help everybody. So when you relapsed and, and you took that pipe and, and I want to remind you that when you told me that, you know, you have found this and stuff like that, you didn't tell me until years later that you had already smoked some of that pipe. You, you called me and we we talked about it you told me you found the pipe but it became more of a hey you used to do this too and what do you think if we just do it for a weekend like when when the kids aren't here and you know it would just be fun and because i know my level of addiction i thought 
I could probably do that for a weekend. I mean, it's been 20 plus years that I was clean and sober. And, and at that point, why not? I'm, I'm in love with this man. He wouldn't do anything to hurt me. And, you know, he'll, I took, I took you at your word because that has what I gotten used to. You had not lied to me. You had not, uh, um, manipulated me in any way at that before that. And so at this point, I didn't think you would. So we did it for that weekend. And, um, then it turned into Monday. Well, we did it on Sunday. And so we got to get to work on Monday. And so that's how it, you know, progressed. Um, I continue to go to work every day. I continue to do what I needed to do. But within the first month, you stop calling me um, right away. You stop calling me when you used to call me. I, it gets more like a check-in, you know, you, you would stop checking in when you would leave work you would always call me hey how you doing i'm on my way home or i'm going here um you weren't responding to to any of my messages or any of my calls you started showing up late you started contacting people really shady people that you used to know back before you met me and i would say within a month I was already starting to say, hey, we need to stop doing this because you're starting to change. And every time I would say anything about a stopping, it became a new manipulation. As long as I'm still sleeping every night, we'll be fine. As long as I'm not creeping out at night, we'll be okay. Um, if I don't talk to these people, we'll be fine. So there was always something that was going to make that problem go away. Um, so I would say within a month, you were starting to sneak out. Um, you would leave at night and not come home until the wee hours of the morning, like most meth addicts do. And you try to keep all that stuff away from me. So you kind of hid the criminal background away from me. Um, you know, when you were starting to break into homes or whatever you were doing, you try to separate the two. So I can see that you were trying to be this family man, but at the same time, wanting to be an addict as well. You were enjoying your addiction at that time. Um, that's when we really started for the first time after dating for a year where the arguments really started. Um, and arguments got worse. And as the arguments got worse, the more you would disappear. So instead of just leaving for a night, you would leave for three or four days. And mind you, at the same time, now I'm back into the addiction and I'm looking for some, you know, uh, a method to be able to continue my addiction in the meantime, still trying to be a mom, still trying to be a, um, a senior manager at the company that I was working for. So I'm trying to control my life, but at the same time, I'm trying to reel you back in because you're losing control. So I remember that you started reaching out to some pretty shady characters. And I remember them coming over to the house. Uh, you would take off and leave your friend friend there and they would hit on me or they would make me really uncomfortable. I would tell you like, you need to get home. This guy's really weird. 
you know, things of that nature. And you just didn't care anymore. You didn't care what would happen uh, or what was being, um, what could have happened to me, uh, what could have happened to uh, my children or, you know, our children now, but, you know, my children. So it, it started to become very apparent. And then at some point, because I kept asking you to let's get clean, let's get, let's work through this, you know, let's get past this. It became that I was now your nuisance and um, you didn't want anything to do with me. Uh, the big, I think the biggest pain, and I still feel it today, is that we would argue, you would say you're going to leave and I'd beg you to stay. Let's work through it. Let's let's get clean. Let's go get help, whatever the case may be. But every time before you left, you would look at me, you'd stare at me, and I could see in your eyes the struggle that you were going through. And that's what kept me wanting to hold on and keep trying to help. Because in your eyes, your eyes were... It, it almost became like your eyes were begging for help, but your body wouldn't allow you to get that help. Your addiction, your craving would not allow you to get that help. And you would always say, I love you. And this is why we joke about the free bird comment, right? Because you would say, but I love you, but I'm, I have to be free. I have to be a free bird and uh, roam and do my thing. It really is that my mind knew and wanted the ability to stop, but the thought of stopping seemed scarier and more difficult than not stopping or right. stopping. <laughs> and and I do remember that battle with inside, you know, with me inside. And because of all of the years that I had clean and sober, out of all of the years of working with the people that I've worked with and teaching people all of this stuff, all of the stuff that I told them not to do was the stuff that I ended up doing. Mm -hmm. And because of all of that experience of all of my drug use from 2002 prior, I knew that I was in trouble. Okay. I knew that there was no way for me to stop. And this is what I think a lot of people really don't grasp in the power behind that addiction, or at least the way I experienced it. Right. That everything about everything was methamphetamine. It was about making sure that I had the money to get more. I couldn't hold a job because number one, I wouldn't make enough money in a job to get what I needed. And that's right. where a lot of the crime became involved. And large quantities is ultimately what I was looking for because right. then I would sell it. But I was a horrible dealer. Yeah. <laughs> It's not, you're not a good dealer when you're doing more than you're able to sell. Right. And that's where, again, just sort of compounded the need for me to make sure that I made more money. And, and it's crazy because for me, it, it, I was numb to a lot of stuff, 
but somewhere back and deep in my mind, I had that fear mm -hmm. and I knew, and I literally felt that I was going to die, that this was ultimately going to take me out because I didn't think I'd be able to do it again. Well, and that's why I left. That's why I finally left because one, I had to learn to love myself and love my kids more than you. And I always, you know, I always say I, I'm always going to love my kids more than anybody in this world, but I had to now put them in first place. Right. And two, because I knew that I didn't want to be the one to bury you. You had lost so much control. You were braille thin. There was nothing I said or did that would keep you um, from from getting help, or that would that would get you to get help. So I knew at at that point I I was losing the battle with you, and I tried everything I could. I mean, even to the point where I told your parents, right. Um, hoping that that would scare you enough to get clean and I my guess. job oh and your job yeah that's right um and i also wanted to stop using and i didn't want to to keep using either and you know using that as my crutch or my excuse why i was still holding on to you so that was that was a big that was a big deal and but the biggest thing and i remember telling my best friend at the time I'm not going to bury him. I want to keep on to the memories that we made. It broke my heart. I was a complete wreck. Um, but that's when I decided to leave you and not tell you where I was going. That's why I describe in the book that story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. It is the epitome of the story. You know, Dr. Jekyll makes a potion and he becomes Mr. Hyde. But in the beginning, he was able to control it and to go back. And eventually it reached a story where it reached a part where he was completely unable to resort back to Dr. Jekyll and maintained and stayed within Mr. Hyde. Right. And, and that's what I really, what's so important for me to portray to my listeners and the people that are out there with drug addiction and ultimately you know, fighting the stigma of substance abuse that so many people look at them as bad people. And yes, they are doing bad things, but there's something much more sinister that is going on within them. While on methamphetamine, of course, I become this different person and I do the things that people could look at and yes, say is a criminal, is a bad person. But the story is so much bigger than that, because while I am clean and sober, I have integrity, yeah. I have values, I have morals. I am a person that wants to run out and help everybody, which doesn't help all the time with our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> but that is who I am when I am clean and sober. And that was the real lesson for me. And, you know, I take, I've really tried to take stories such as this as being 
what what we originally could look at as negative bad stories and transforming them into something that does become helpful and positive and for me that story really showed me as i had said earlier that you know from if you relapse it's like you never stopped i will attest to that story 100% that there's a lot of validity behind that because it was like i never stopped there was a short period of time where i had a little bit of control at first mhm but i lost that very quickly and it was back to where i was back in 2001 and 2002 and when i and that's also when i realized that addiction had nothing to do with love um because it's hard to separate what the drug is doing to you versus the person you're becoming so it you you start to believe that the person that you had known prior to the drug use was the fake and this was the real person and the thing about that story is that even though we used to always joke about the fact that it's not love i like i like we used to always joke about that but there was back in that time where i was madly in love with you mm-hmm. before this relapse right and in my mind it was almost the mentality of even if i do this that would never change because of the right. love that i have for you right but it did and it didn't necessarily say that i don't love you but that drug and i hate to say this became more important than you right and that's a neurological thing of course when we study physiological effects it is affecting that part of the brain that has to do with survival dopamine survival and so when i'm looking at that from a physiological effects and as i've studied that it makes sense when we look at the part of the brain that we're manipulating with mm-hmm. drugs and what is above survival nothing right and since drugs ultimately become that level where our brains are sitting on i need to do this to survive you naturally are going to be knocked down as less important i hate to say that but that is the truth when i studied physiological effects and that's why it really did start to make sense to me right and that's why i say that our level of addiction is a little different because i my need to quit was because my kids really needed a mom and so that level of love didn't change for me it was i was selfish because i i was still using but trying to be a mom at the same time and and so they were missing out you know um but it like i don't think you stop loving that person or those people around you like you didn't stop loving your parents when you when you were not at it uh, back in you know 2001 and earlier you didn't stop loving me it was just that you were on a search for chasing that dragon like they say and just trying to to keep your body from craving and just wanting to use and so 
it's not necessarily that you stop loving somebody. It's just that, like you said, it, the need for the drug is more important. It overpowers. I knew what stopping was like. I knew the depression that I was going to ultimately have to experience. I knew the guilt and the regret that was going to be compounded with that depression that I was going to experience. And that was something that became very difficult for me uh, in rehab when I went in there because mm -hmm. the guilt that I had for introducing you to intravenous use mm -hmm. was something that did not sit well with me right. when I got clean and sober because the danger behind that right. IV drug use is the most dangerous route to use because it eliminates all the protective mechanisms that our body has goes straight right. into the blood. Right. And I thought about that when I was getting clean and sober in detox, which just depressed me even more. And all right. of those things that I did with Spencer and getting him hooked on, hooked back on methamphetamine, which eventually led him to 10 years and eight months in prison, which he is still serving time for. And I f still feel very bad about that. And so I'm, you know, I know everybody always says that, you know, yes, you may have put it in front of him to do it, but he definitely still made the decision on his end to use it and start selling it and doing all those things. But that is a big factor with stopping. Mm -hmm. And it's also why so many people say in rehab, when they're in treatment, they say, I won't be able to do it again. I won't be able to get clean again. If I go out and use, that's it. I know that is true for a lot of people. Right. Right. especially when you had to experience all of this stuff before. Mm -hmm. And, and again, that's why it's so important for me to help people understand that this is a sickness when people are on it, especially to the level of where I was at. And I was slamming probably more than an eight ball a day that it becomes a part of you. And that's when it becomes very scary. Right. I will say that those experiences that I went through, I can honestly say today that I am grateful for them because I now have that knowledge and I can use it to help people. Luckily, it did not completely destroy us. Right. We did get back together. We did get married. <laughs> and I think personally, we have a great relationship with still plenty of faults for me. <laughs> I don't think I'm perfect either. <laughs> no, you're the perfect one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you, you know. you're pretty. You're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one thing I can say that that luckily, but this doesn't happen for a lot of people. Luckily, we did get through this, right? And we were able to work through this. And you did exactly what was highly recommended that we recommend to families to do, which was, what did you do? I left. I left and I told you that we weren't going to get back together until you completed a program. And I got clean myself. And yeah, I had to turn my back. 
And that's and, exactly, and that's exactly what is recommended mm -hmm. for uh, for families that you have to sometimes do that. Turn your back, not enable, let them fall. And I will say too that this was the first time in my entire life that I got clean and sober without having to get arrested. Yeah. And a lot of that and the way that worked was you. It was what you did because I was able to find that love that I had for you that was buried deep down in. And that was a big reason why I ended up doing that. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't want to lose you. Yeah. I, 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 I love you. I <laughs> love you too. But I love and you I, more. And I remember <laughs> when I was leaving. I mean, I had packed up. We were in this back and forth moving truck. You didn't know where I was going. I had changed my number. Your mom is the one who called me and said, hey, Eric didn't show up to go to rehab. Like he said he was going to. And I said, yeah, I knew he wouldn't. You know, I told her I knew you wouldn't. I've tried and um, got off the phone with her. And I told my best friend, let me call him and make sure that he's alive. And I said, because I can guarantee you, he will say there's no reason to get clean if I was leaving. And literally, that was the first thing you said, because you picked up the phone and you said, um, I said, where are you? You're supposed to meet your mom. And you said, well, there's no point to get clean if you're leaving me. But I had gotten I had gotten used to the manipulation and I knew that's what you were going to say. You know, so I said, OK, fine, I'll go pick you up and I'm, I'll drop you off. And I remember taking you to rehab, but you still had, didn't know where I was going to move to. You weren't sure, you know, um, we got you into rehab and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I was taking precaution because I was not going to enable you anymore. And I, and I think by saying, yeah, let's get high that weekend. I got, I took a lot of guilt into that because it, a lot of that, me being okay with it at that point, because I didn't know you had smoked this pipe beforehand. I felt like it was my fault for being okay with it. So I wasn't going to continue to enable you. And that decision to help me initially, it would not have changed anything. If you hadn't helped in that situation, mm -hmm. I would have found it somewhere else. Oh yeah. Well, now that I, well, now that I know that you smoked before me, I knew I was going to lose you anyway. So it wasn't my fault, <laughs> but you know, again, that didn't come out until way later. You know, I thought that was the first weekend we did it together that we both had done it together at the same time. And, and so that kind of stuff, you know? Um, but yeah, leaving you was the hardest thing that I ever had to do at that point until I had to turn my back on my son too. So, so you practiced, you practiced on me. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and it worked with uh, Alex too. Yep. It did work with Alex. He's got three years clean and sober and uh, man, I, you know, 
what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, I guess. It absolutely does. Mm -hmm. Pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success, right? Absolutely. And, and I think I think in our current relationship and the struggles that we have been through um, with, you know, addiction and, and all that, um, I think it has made us stronger as a couple. Um, we're able to kind of figure out if we can get through that, there's a lot we can get through, especially a pandemic. <laughs> right. We're, we're doing well. Yeah. You're in the, uh, in the mountains. I am in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> this is our vacation cabin that we will eventually have one day when we grow up. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is the power of stepping aside. Yeah. Letting and I think it's fall. really important for families to really, and I'm going to echo what you said, there's nothing you can do. You can force them into rehab. You can, uh, you know, give them money so they have a place to stay. It's nothing you can do until the addict himself, him or herself, get tired of being tired. And the best thing that you can do is turn your back and walk away. And it's it's really tough to do, and it's something. But you can't. You don't have control, because not even the addict has control. The addict thinks they have control, but they don't have control of their own life. So, for somebody on the outside or a family member, they even have even less control. Yeah, the more pain that you can give somebody, the better off they are. Right. And I, I had a, I luckily had an experience where I got kicked in the head. Oh yeah, literally literally got kicked in the head and at the time of course i was ready to kill the person but i look back at to, at it today and that helped me also right. i needed to get some sense knocked into me but i did get jumped and i did get beat up and i did get all of my stuff taken from me Mm -hmm. And, of course, at the time, that was horrible. Right. But I look back at it today, and I can actually be thankful for that individual in doing that. Right. Thankful for you walking away. That was, I think, what ultimately pushed me the most into getting into rehab. And that's why enabling is so so dangerous. Mm -hmm. People need, do need to step aside. Yeah. Let them fall. And let them know, I love you. But I got to leave until you decide to make a decision and do something for yourself. Yeah. I, I clearly remember telling Alex, I love you, but I'm not going to love you to death. Yeah. Well, honey, I want to thank you for joining me today. I love your cabin. And I look forward to seeing it someday. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on. And I want to thank everybody for listening to another episode of Recovering Through Highness. And we will see you soon. Bye. Something to give.